Chapter 19 of The Court by B. M. Bauer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Swan Calls for Help. Past the field where the horses were grazing and up the canyon on the side toward Skyline Meadow that lay on a shoulder of bare top, the dog nosed unfalteringly along the trail. Now and then he was balked when the hoof prints led him to the bank of Granite Creek, but not for long. Jack appeared to understand why his trailing was interrupted and sniffed the bank until he picked up the scent again. "'Wonder if she changed off and rode that loose horse?' Hawkins said once, when the tracks were plain in the soft soil of the creek bank. "'She might, and lead that horse she was on. "'She wouldn't know enough. She's a city girl,' Lone replied, his heart heavy with fear for Lorraine." "'Well, she ain't far off, then,' Hawkins comforted himself. "'Her horse acted about played out when she hit the ranch. "'She had him wet from his ears to his tail, "'and he was breathing like that Ford at the ranch. "'If that's a sample of her riding, she ain't far off.' "'Crazy to ride up here. "'Keep your eyes open, boys. "'We must find her, whatever we do.' Warfield gazed apprehensively at the rugged steeps on either hand and at the timber line above them. From here on, she couldn't turn back without meeting us, if I remember this country correctly. Could she, Hawkins? Not unless she turned off up here a mile or two into that gulch that heads into Skyline, said Hawkins. There's a stock trail, part way down from the top, where it swings off from the divide to Wilder Creek. Swan, walking just behind Hawkins, moved up a pace. I could go on Skyline with Yak, and I could come down by those trail, he suggested diffidently, Swedishly, yet with a certain compelling confidence. What you think? I think that's a damn good idea for a squarehead, Hawkins told him and repeated it to Warfield, who was riding ahead. Why, yes, we don't need the dog. Or the man, either. Go up to the head of the gulch and keep your eyes open, Swan. We'll meet you up here. You know the girl, don't you? Yes, I know her pretty good, grinned Swan. Well, don't frighten her. Don't let her see that you think anything is wrong. And don't say anything about us. We made the mistake of discussing her condition within her hearing, and it is possible that she understood enough of what we were saying to take alarm. You understand? Don't tell the girl she's crazy. He tapped his head to make his meaning plainer. Don't tell the girl we're looking for her. You understand? Yes, I know English pretty good. I don't tell too much. His cheerful smile brought a faint response from Senator Warfield. At loan, he did not look at all. I go quick. I'm good climber like a sheep he boasted, and, whistling to Jack, he began working his way up a rough, brush-scattered ledge to the slope above. Lone watched him miserably, wishing that Swan was not quite so matter-of-fact in his man-chasing. If Al Woodruff, for some reason which Lone could not fathom, had taken Lorraine and forced her to go with him into the wilderness, Warfield and Hawkins would be his allies the moment they came up with him. Lone was no coward, but neither was he a fool. 
Hawkins had never distinguished himself as a fighter, but Lone had gleaned here and there a great deal of information about Senator Warfield in the old days when he had been plain Bill. When Lorraine and Al were overtaken, then Lone would need to show the stuff that was in him. He only hoped he would have time, and that luck would be with him. If they get me, it'll be all off with her, he worried as he followed the two up the canyon. Swan would have been a help. What do you think's more a catching owl than he does a helping Rainy? He looked up and saw that already Swan was halfway up the canyon's steep side, making his way through the brush with more speed than Lung could have shown on foot in the open, unless he ran. The sight heartened Lone a little. Swan might have some plan of his own, an ambush, possibly. If he would only keep along within rifle shot and remain hidden, he would show real brains, Lone thought. But Swan, when Lone looked up again, was climbing straight away from the little searching party, and even though he seemed tireless on foot, he could not perform miracles. Swan, however, was not troubling himself over what Lone would think or even what Warfield was thinking. Contrary to Lone's idea of him, Swan was tired, and he was thinking a great deal about Lorraine and very little about Al Woodruff, except as Al was concerned with Lorraine's welfare. Swan had made a mistake, and he was humiliated over his blunder. Al had kept himself so successfully in the background while Lone's peculiar actions had held his attention that Swan had never considered Al Woodruff as the killer. Now he blamed himself for Frank's death. He had been watching Lone, had been baffled by Lone's consistent kindness toward the court by the force of his personality, which held none of the elements of cold-blooded murder. He had believed that he had the sawtooth killer under observation, and he had been watching and waiting for evidence that would impress a grand jury. And all the while, he had let Al Woodruff ride free and unsuspected. The one stupid thing, in Swan's opinion, which he had not done, was to let Lone go on holding his tongue. He had forced the issue that morning. He had wanted to make Lone talk, had hoped for a weakening and a confession. Instead, he had learned a good deal which he should have known before. As he forged up the slope across the ridged lip of the canyon, his one immediate object was speed. Up the canyon and over the divide on the west shoulder of Bear Top was a trail to the open country beyond. It was perfectly passable, as Swan knew. He had packed in by that trail when he located his homestead on Bear Top. That is why he had his cabin up and was living in it before the sawtooth discovered his presence. Al, he believed, was making for Bear Top Pass. Once down the other side, he would find friends to lend him fresh horses. Swan had learned something of these friends of the sawtooth, and he could guess pretty accurately how far some of them would go in their service. Fresh horses for Al, food perhaps even a cabin where he could hide Lorraine away, were to be expected from any one of them once Al was over the divide. Swan glanced up at the sun, saw that it was dropping to late afternoon, and started in at a long, loose-jointed trot across the mountain meadow called Skyline. A few pines with scattered clumps of juniper and fir 
dotted the long, irregular stretch of grassland which formed the meadow. Range cattle were feeding here and there, so wild they lifted their heads to stare at the man and dog, then came trotting forward, their curiosity unabated by the fact that they had seen these two before. Jack looked up at his master, looked at the cattle, and took his place at Swan's heels. Swan shouted and flung his arms, and the cattle ducked, turned, and galloped awkwardly away. Swan's trot did not slacken. His rifle swung rhythmically in his right hand. The muzzle tilted downward. Beads of perspiration on his forehead had merged into tiny rivulets on his cheeks and dripped off his clean-lined square jaw. Still, he ran, his breath unlabored, yet coming in whispery aspirations from his great lungs. The full length of Skyline Meadow, he ran, jumping the small beginning of Wilder Creek with one great leap that scarcely interrupted the beautiful rhythm of his stride. At the far end of the clearing, snuggled between two great pines that reached high into the blue, his squatty cabin showed red-brown against the precipitous shoulder of Bare Top Peak, covered thick with brush and scraggy timber whipped incessantly by the wind that blew over the mountain's crest. At the door, Swan stopped and examined the crude fastening of the door, made himself certain by private marks of his own that none had entered in his absence, and went in with a great sigh of satisfaction. It was still broad daylight, though the sun's rays slanted in through the window, but Swan lighted a lantern that hung on a nail behind the door, carried it across the neat little room, and set it down on the floor beside the usual pioneer cupboard, made simply of clean boxes nailed bottom against the wall. Swan had furnished a few extra frills to his cupboard, for the ends of the boxes were fastened to hewn slabs, standing upright and just clearing the floor. Near the upper shelf, a row of nails held Swan's coffee cups, four of them, thick and white, such as cheap restaurants use. Swan hooked a finger over the nail that held a cracked cup and glanced over his shoulder at Jack, sitting in the doorway with his keen nose to the world. You watch out now, Yak. I shall talk to my mother with my thoughts, he said, drawing a hand across his forehead and speaking in breathless gasps. You watch. For answer, Jack thumped his tail on the dirt floor and sniffed the breeze, taking in his overlapping tongue while he did so. He licked his lips, looked over his shoulder at Swan, and draped his pink tongue down over his lower jaw again. All right, now I talk said Swan and pulled upon the nail in his fingers. The cupboard swung toward him bodily, in slabs and all. He picked up the lantern, stepped over the log sill, and pulled the cupboard door into place again. Inside the dugout, Swan set the lantern on a table, dropped wearily upon a rough bench before it, and looked at the jars beside him, lifted his hand and opened a compact but thoroughly efficient field wireless set. His right fingers dropped to the key, and the whining drone of the wireless rose higher and higher as he tuned up. He reached for his receivers, ducked his head and adjusted them with one hand, and sent a call spinning tiny blue sparks from the key under his fingers. He waited, repeating the call. His blue eyes clouded with anxiety, and he fumbled the adjustments, coaxing the current into perfect action, 
before he called again. Answer came, and Swan bent over the table, listening, his eyes fixed vacantly upon the opposite wall of the dugout. Then, his fingers flexing delicately, swiftly he sent the message that told how completely his big heart matched the big body. Send doctor and trained nurse to Court Ranch at once. Send men to Bear Top Pass. Intercept man with young woman, or come to rescue if he don't cross. Have three men here with evidence to convict if we can save the girl who is a valuable witness. Girl being abducted in fear of what she can tell. They plan to charge her with insanity. Urgent. Hurry. Come ready to fight. S.V. Swan had a code, but codes require a little time in the composition of a message, and time was the one thing he could not waste. He heard the gist of the message repeated to him, told the man at the other station that lives were at stake, and threw off the current. End of chapter 19 Recording by Tom Penn